0: Steve happy uh, let's pretend it's a Monday conversation again
1: <laughs> we're on a pretty good streak of doing these uh, not on Mondays it's pretty impressive
0: yeah uh, we're actually flying out on Monday to go hang out with born and raised guys and shoot some content which uh, sneak peek will be coming to the podcast as well as their YouTube channel and some giveaways and all a whole bunch of cool stuff coming and it's uh, it'll be coming in August so sneak peek there for the listeners so that's what we'll be doing Monday. But let's answer some listener questions. First one just came up recently. You were talking about a new rifle build um, and got a couple of questions on that. One being a gentleman who wrote in and said, I know Steve's been shooting a 6.5 PRC, but is now building a Creedmoor. Wondering why. And he specifically says, I ask because I'm considering a 6.5 PRC for my next do it all rifle. Um, yeah. There's a few things chatting there, but I guess super high level, Steve, why'd you pick a Creedmoor?
1: I'm just a recoil sissy. <laughs> That's the <laughs> flat out truth. Um, I just, I had a Creedmoor before, and then I got the PRC cause I got, uh, you know, just, you start running the ballistics on it. The thing is exceptionally impressive. Uh, and then I had it and I just shot, if I shot on the same, you know, alternating guns, I'd take both guns out and go shoot in the desert or something practicing and it was hot day. So I'd rotate, you know, shoot five shots with one, five shots with the other. I just consistently always shot better groups with the cream more and someone who's very proficient and capable with a rifle. They both shot identical groups, right? They were both like half MOA guns. I just didn't shoot it. And all I could attribute that to was just recoil. I've got a pretty jacked up shoulder from kind of had a rotator cuff injury and, and uh, separated my shoulder a long time ago when I was in high school. And so I think the gun just sits a little awkward in my shoulder and the bones aren't like all in the right place there. (laughs) And, uh, and yes, so just flat out, I just shoot lighter recoil guns better. And, and, um, yeah, that's, that's my decision to go back. And then also the, there is a, the cream or I had, was like, um, I think it was like nine, eight and a half to nine pounds depending been on the scope. I put on it and then the PRC, I built super light and I, you know, I figured out that that's the opposite direction, right? Like, you know, the PRC has more recoil to it um should be a heavier gun right not a lighter gun and i think that was also part of the reason that i didn't shoot it as well but uh yeah i'm building this cream it's it's light for sure um i mean a light gun but that mild recoil and with suppressor on it should be pretty dialed in I mean, should get it. it's ready i just got to find time to go pick it up here in the next week
0: yeah if you guys um wanted that more into Creedmore versus prc there's a lot of out there there's lots of thoughts lots of opinions whatever um i actually wrote an article, I don't know, some point earlier this year about that, because I faced the same situation and picked a more as well. Not because I think it's quote unquote better than a PRC, but just because of what my goals were. Uh, and that article will leave a link in the show notes, but it basically goes through it beyond looking at uh, performance, right? Because there's no question a PRC outperforms a more. So beyond those things, what are basically some of the reasons you would consider a Creedmoor, right? Um, what I think is interesting in this guy's question, which was the second part of his uh, question is more of a statement that he said, he's asking this question because he is considering a six, five PRC for my next quote unquote, do it all rifle. Um, and so that, that changes things, right? Because, uh, maybe you do need the power of the PRC if you're talking to do it all. What I find curious is people throw around that, uh, that label, that idea, that phrase of do it all, but you don't actually know what that means to somebody, right? So someone who may say, do it all, meaning I want a rifle that does everything I need it to do. Some guys truly mean I want to be able to essentially go relatively anywhere, hunt anything and have one rifle to do it. So one guy who maybe lives in the Midwest or even out West, but is always going to stay like lower 48 and he only hunts deer and black bear and elk, like that's his do it all. may have another guy who truly wants to go, uh, hunt brown bear one day or go to Africa. Like what does do it all mean to you? Uh, and depending on your answer to that question, a PRC may or may not be a great choice. Um, so yeah, it's always, uh, it's always worth considering and dive into more of that article. If you guys want to read further, uh, this question came through Steve is honestly like a super easy one to answer, but I think it highlights maybe, some ways that guys can just go overboard out of uh, fear, worry, or uh, ignorance. And I don't say ignorance like degrading, just they don't have like experience to know basically what they need. This guy wrote in says, uh, me and my buddy are going on our first backcountry hunt this season. We were planning on hiking in a few miles and setting up a base camp. We are buttoning up our gear list and all the essentials and the topic of charging phones and or GPS units came up. What recommendations do you have for this I don't think we'll be out for more than four days. Would you bring a twenty five thousand milliamp power bank? would you bring a charging unit with solar panels or would you do something else I would like to know how you guys go about having power in the back country uh, yeah. So four days, 25,000 milliamps, you're like way overkill, <laughs> yeah,
1: way, 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 overkill, um, way
0: yeah. overkill. So again, I'm highlighting this because if you, if guys just don't have experience, they tend to like go to one extreme and now he's going to be carrying this massive heavy power bank when he doesn't even, not even like remotely close to needing that much power. Um, honestly on a four day hunt, I, I would bring something small if nothing, maybe, right? Especially if there's two of you and it depends on how you use things. But if you are using like, let's say your phone and you're keeping it in airplane mode, you're only using it for Onyx maps or something similar um, and taking photos and you're just not on it all the time, you know, using cell service and playing games or something. I don't know why you would be. But you can honestly, I get four days out of my phone typically in those scenarios, maybe a little bit less if it's really cold. So I would bring something most likely, um, but even 10,000 milliamps would be more than enough. Like I've taken 10,000 milliamps on week-long hunts and had plenty of juice left over after topping things off. So, um, yeah, 25,000 milliamps, absolutely overkill. I wouldn't worry about solar panels in my experience, they're finicky. Uh, the technology of backpacking friendly solar panels tend to be finicky. You then have to babysit them. Like you can set them up at camp and go hunt for the day, but then realize, well, I didn't set this up in a smart way. And now this wasn't actually in the sun most of the day type thing, right. Depending on your cover. Um, but something super small, five, six, seven, maybe up to 10,000 milliamps go spend shoot probably 30 bucks on Amazon. Uh, get an anchor or something similar. And that's all I need. Anything to add to that, Steve?
1: Uh, Yeah, to me, it's pretty simple. It's just, I mean, you're going to find out through experience how long your phone lasts just in airplane mode. I would say a rough rule, you know, three days for most phones. Um, But you can really just look at, it's not listed on your phone. Maybe it's in the settings or something like that, but just Google your phone and find out the battery size. Most of them are going to be, you know, big batteries around 3000, uh, I think like my, I have an iPhone that's 2,800 maybe. And just no, so 2,800 milliamps. If you got 10,000 milliamp uh, battery bank, you're going to recharge that thing three times. It's not a perfect one-to-one really ratio, right? I think as, as it's charging the phone, it's not like a hundred percent efficient, but it's pretty close. Uh, and then, yeah. So for me, I, um, I just, I have my inReach Mini and my phone are the two things that I need to charge when I'm out there. And if it's, Anything under five days, 6,000 is is plenty. I've never really even re- remotely come close to using it all. But to me, it's kind of a safety factor, first aid factor. Right? You break your leg mm-hmm. and it takes a week for the you know search and rescue to come get you because of bad weather or something like that. Uh, you're going to be able to keep that, you know, you're in reach charged up the whole time. So 6,000 is my kind of light battery bank. And then uh, the next jump up is a 10,000 milliamp one. And um, I can't remember the brand name. Anchor does make good ones. I have one of those, A-N-K-E-R. Um, they're fairly lightweight and been pretty bomb proof. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll jump up to 10,001. If, if I'm going to be videoing, recharge some of the camera batteries when needed, uh, and, or, you know, when you start approaching that five to 10 day hunt, then I'll jump up to that bigger bank. Um, yeah. And but you're talking, you know, my 6,000 weighs three and a half ounces and my 10,000 weighs like five and a half ounces or something like that. It's, it's, Um, not a huge jump in there in those 10,000s, but I, I have, when I've looked at the bigger 25s, uh, those really do jump up quite a bit in weight. So that 10,000 is kind of a sweet spot. I think of getting the most, um, milliamps per ounce. Right. Right. I mean, if you're talking a four day hunt and like you said, Steve, getting away with say a
0: 6,000 milliamp, comparing that to a 25, you're literally talking four times the size and weight easy, right? Just based on power. Um, yeah. 25 is overkill, but, uh, next one came through, um, wanting to know about temperature effects on archery equipment. So this guy writes in and says, have you guys noticed any speed or accuracy issues with your bow and extreme temperature swings? I know as with rifles, temperature and altitude affect a bullet, but do the same temperatures affect the bow as well with expansion and contraction of fiberglass, carbon fiber, etc." Have you guys tested speed and accuracy from high to low temperatures or vice versa? I've not tested that Steve
1: either. (laughs) I mean, I've, uh, I've gone, you know, shooting a hundred degrees with my bows zeroed in, in the summer and then shooting in 10 degrees. Uh, I've never noticed a change. I'm sure there's something there. You get a uh, 10 Gillingham or something. like that. It's going to tell you to change your sight tape by a foot per second, probably. But uh, I think any practical in, inside of our physical abilities to shoot a group at 70, 80 yards, I highly doubt you would be able to notice a difference more than more than anything. The cold is going to affect your muscles and ability to draw and hold manker than, than it is um, going to affect the, the bow and the velocity that it's shooting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was where my head was at. you could take the same idea with rifles and say, your point of impact is going to change based on altitude or temperature, but that only matters at a certain distance. Right. Um, and so those same kind of principles apply, obviously the the changes are going to affect a bow more just because it's moving slower. So it has the potential to vary further, even though your shot distances are closer. But as you said, Steve, nothing scientific whatsoever, nothing expert shooting like Gill and Ham level, as you said, I'm sure we'll have an opinion on this as a, average hunter shooter. I've never noticed anything that's affected that. And again, I've hunted at 90 degrees and at five degrees, right. Um, as you said, things that will change are you, your, your body's condition as well as clothing is always something that can be a factor. Um, your anchor point can change based off of if you're wearing like bulky headwear or have a hood, um, obviously your sleeves, if you have a really heavier jacket on could inter- interact with the string potentially. So there's, uh, side effects, I think not of temperature, but of the way that you were personally set up to hunt in colder temperatures that could affect things. And that are worth testing, right? Like shoot with gloves on, shoot with your coat on, shoot with that headwear on, do all those things. Cause that can make a difference there. Um, it, there's no doubt that temperature and extreme temperatures can affect a bow. So on the, the heat side of things, it's obviously I think fairly well known to not leave your bow in the truck in the middle of the summer, right? Cause the temperatures inside of a vehicle, inside of a vehicle can get extremely high strings can stretch. Uh, materials can have issues with those extremes, for example. Um, things that come to mind with cold are just keeping an eye on um, more so accessories of the bow as well. Things like a drop away rest or even honestly static rest. If anybody's still shooting a whisker biscuit, like way back in the day, I've had those freeze on me, right? Or get snow packed to them. So there's, there's side effects. Yes. To temperature, but in terms of, do you need to worry about adjusting? As you said, Steve, your sight tape or things like that? Probably not. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Steve completely random. This is like, such a funny question, but I thought it'd be funny to hear the answer. Sky writes in and says, have you guys seen the show alone on the history channel? If you haven't, the main premise is that 10 people are dropped off separately in the wild and have very limited supplies. They have to live off the land, be able to forage, hunt, fish for survival, and build shelter all by themselves. People can tap out whenever they want, but the person who stays the longest wins a million dollars. People typically quit because they cannot mentally handle being alone for that long. So my question is, how do you think the two of you would do on a show like that? Could you survive 30 to 60 days alone in the wild without contact with anyone else?
1: I don't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's easy to (laughs) sit back and say, like, I don't think I'd have an issue doing that at all, Um, but maybe I don't know. Uh I'm sure maybe the people that are pulling into that though, like live in a city and around constant people. I have, you know, I get more into a groove the longer the hunt goes. So uh 10 days isn't an issue. I don't see how that, you know, pulling that out to 30 or whatever is gonna be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. That's a random one. It was totally random. I wouldn't miss the hell out of my kids. I know that. Damn, yeah, wife. I
0: mean that's that's what hit me is like, could I do it? I don't know. Do I want to? No. Right? Like, yeah. It goes back to Anytime you face adversity of any sort, what helps you get through that or what gives you the out or the excuse is like your desire and your will in a certain way, right? So if you want something bad enough where there's a will, there's way, right? And you're willing to push through discomfort and adversity and difficulty and challenge because you essentially have like a higher purpose or a higher desire that's greater than any suffering you're experiencing in that moment so to me, when I think of this question, it's like, I don't have a desire. Like there will be difficulty and trouble and things like that, that I probably would tap out on. Cause I just don't want that. Like there's nothing driving me to that. So uh, as an interesting thing, it, it made me like really kind of chuckle at how people maybe perceive me or you Steve, like, yeah, I don't know. We're not experts, right? Like we love hunting the back country and all that, but we're not survival guys and we will love Being alone, as you said, for like 10 days or whatever, but I don't honestly, yeah, don't have the desire to go do that for months on end. I think it's the contrasts of life are what makes life special, right? Um, Steve, have you ever, this question came in as well, nothing, I don't think I've ever talked about. Long story short, this guy broke a trekking pole from his set. So he now has one left over. Uh, he says he has an upcoming hunt in the Frank and instead of buying a new set of trekking poles, he was considering buying a trekking pole slash ice axe combination. So he's going to have his one standard trekking pole. And then this new, you know, ice axe slash trekking pole. He's curious if we've ever used those, uh, if we found them beneficial for things like climbing in steep terrain, Clearing out areas to pitch your tarp or just looking cool in photos, which was his words, which was funny. So, have you played with those at all? I, I have no. seen several out there, obviously, for mountaineering. I've never had a need for one um, to use one.
1: I've, yeah, I've seen them. Um, maybe it'd be really cool. I think you'd have to be in fairly extreme terrain. Um, I could think of like on my sheep hunt last year, there's a few kind of those grassy, really slick parts where. You don't really don't see grass growing on that steep of slopes here in idaho right? if it gets that steep it's rocky but up there there was definitely like pretty steep grassy stuff and i think uh, micro spikes would be something you could pack if you were super familiar in hunting that country a lot um, get those on your shoes and get some better traction to keep you from slipping but if you were to slip that that uh, um, would be a pretty cool tool to have in your in your hand for sure but uh, yeah i don't i mean he said he's going to be in the frank church this year Yeah. I mean, I'll be spending 30 days in there. Probably. I don't, it's not something that's even remotely on my radar.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it gets become terrain and weather dependent, right? You're doing a late season mountain goat hunt dealing with, you know, incredibly steep terrain plus snow and ice and all that. It makes Um, a ton of sense. Um, But yeah, for what, We've experienced, right? And what most guys would experience is probably overkill. It probably is more of a, a prop to look cool in the photos, as he said, than it is practical. And yeah, there's alternate uses, right? Like you said, clearing out a spot to put your tarp or whatever. Sure, you could use it for that. It's just not really a need. Um, And I think, yeah, it would just be kind of overkill, right? Like you're adding some weight, they have some level of liability if you're careless with them to more probability for injury or puncture damage, things like that. So they definitely have a place, uh, get up into again, Alaska, BC, even lower 48 late season stuff, um, where they're beneficial, but just not generally required for what most folks are doing and ourselves included on that. All right. That's a wrap for today. That was uh, that was a good list of questions, guys. We always appreciate it. We have more to answer, but always more are welcome. So if you have a question for a future show, send that by email to podcast at exomountgear.com. As we hinted with the discussion earlier about meeting up with Born and Raised and some cool content that will be coming soon. We have another roundtable series coming soon. So there's going to be some great content for the podcast here uh, coming into August as we get ready for September, October and beyond with hunts coming up soon. So As always, if you haven't yet, you can hit that subscribe button
1: uh, in your podcast app so that you receive those future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.